Welcome to season two of The Trip That Changed Me, a podcast about transformative travel experiences hosted by me, Esme Benjamin, editor of Full Time Travel. Coronavirus made it incredibly difficult to travel this year, which is why I believe we need stories like the ones on this podcast more than ever. Live vicariously with me every week as I Zoom with entrepreneurs, writers, entertainers, and everyday adventurers to discuss a journey that shifted their mindset, ignited a new calling, expanded their heart, or ushered in a new chapter. My guest this week is photographer Marta Tucci, whose diverse work has been featured in publications like Condé Nast Traveller and Vogue, and exhibited at the London Museum of Fashion and Textiles. Her impactful photo stories covering human rights issues have taken her to some of the most interesting, complex, and beautiful corners of the world. But it was a trip to Cambodia in 2013 which had the biggest impact on her life. While living in London in her early 20s, Marta was the victim of a violent attack in her own home. For months, Marta struggled with PTSD and an intense fear of being alone that no therapy could alleviate. With the encouragement of her parents, Marta eventually embarked on a solo trip to Cambodia, a trip that would rebuild her self-confidence, heal her trauma, and set her on a path to her dream career as a documentary photographer. Later, Marta co-founded Naya Traveller, a company that specializes in luxury trips underpinned by a strong focus on heritage, tradition, and culture. Through Naya, she now sends other travelers on their own life-changing trips to Cambodia. Marta, welcome to The Trip That Changed Me. Hi, how are you doing? Thanks so much for having me. I'm good. You and I actually spoke not that long ago, and it ended up being one of those conversations that it went way over the amount of time that it was supposed to be. I think we talked for an hour and a half, and uh, I realized that although originally I was interviewing you for the, for the newsletter, you had an amazing Trip That Changed Me story that would be perfect for the podcast, so I'm glad that you agreed to come on. Yes, absolutely. And it was funny because in that previous interview that that we did, I didn't even realize I had this big trip that had changed me until you started asking me questions about how I had ended up coming to where I was uh, right now in my career. And uh, that's kind of what got me thinking. So in a way, I, I guess it had always been there subliminally, but through our conversation, it was brought to my attention a bit more. And it's actually been great to have the time to to think back at it and maybe like take it apart and realize how important this trip had been in hindsight. And it's such a good story. But yeah, before we jump into that, let's start at the beginning and talk a bit about your childhood. I know you were born in Barcelona to a pilot and a filmmaker. That's really interesting. Very interesting parents. Tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, my parents are very interesting characters and I definitely see a lot of them in myself. They've both uh, always shown a, a very avid interest in adventure and they've translated that to me in every way. So my dad, he's uh, he's been a pilot his whole life and he's always liked to be anywhere except on land. So <laughs> growing up, it's really funny actually because he doesn't know how to get around on land. Like he gets lost very easily. But growing up, he was a sailor. Uh, he competed in the 1972 Olympics um, and he was a Spanish champion. And so he's always been either on the water or on the air, on a plane. And that's kind of where I've grown up um, ever since I was uh, a baby. The first place that I stepped onto was my father's boat. And we've traveled all around the world on the boat. 
my mom, she's always been a great supporter of his crazy ideas of adventures. And as a filmmaker, she's always been there to document every step of the way. So it's actually really nice to be able to have the tapes of my life growing up and, and see how everything has evolved. It must be incredible. Are you, do you have siblings or are you an only child? Yes, I have uh, one sibling. He's younger. His name's Charlie and uh, he lives in California. He's an aerospace engineer. So I guess he, wow. we can establish that he's the brains of the family <laughs> and I'm the creative uh, for lack of a better word. <laughs> and didn't you guys live on a boat for a while when you were a kid? Yes. So it had always been a, a lifelong dream of my dad. And uh, even though we'd always spent a lot of time on the boat, uh, sometimes like two or three months at a time, when I was about 10 years old, he was finally able to realize this dream. Uh, he was able to get a boat that he had been chasing for a really long time that he loved. He was able to buy it. And he said to my mom just one morning having breakfast, you know, like now we have this uh beautiful sailboat it's uh, 60 feet it has everything from a washing machine to uh we can install wi-fi if we want so he said you know why don't we live on the boat and my mom as she'd always done she said absolutely let's let's do it so my parents took us out of school for for a while and for the first few months we just sailed around the caribbean and it was kind of like like a school of life in a way for for my brother and i it was great and then after a few months at sea, we decided to uh, head into a port and we continued to live on the boat. And we would just, you know, hop off the boat and get on the car and go to school like any old regular kid, except that sometimes my homework would fall in the water um, <laughs> and no teacher would ever believe that excuse. So, you know, it had its, its challenges sometimes, but overall it was a very fun experience, I think. From my family, uh, we can all agree that it was one of the best times of our lives. Sounds like an idyllic childhood. Um, and then I know you went to King's College London, where you studied war studies. Is that right? What does that entail? Yes, I know. It sounds um, everybody kind of has a, a surprise or a physical reaction to that. When I had to decide what to, what to do as I was finishing my A-levels, I was very determined to go into the creative or the arts world. And I would have loved to study fine arts or design or something like that. But my parents just opened my mind up to pursuing a more traditional uh, type of degree, just to have that under my belt with the opportunity, obviously, later on to focus or specialize in anything else I wanted. And in a way, I, I decided to follow their advice because it seemed quite solid. And when I was looking at degrees in the UK, I was looking at typical, you know, like politics, history, this and that. And then I came across war studies, which is a degree that's only taught at King's College London. It's not taught anywhere else in the world. And it was basically a degree like international relations or diplomacy with a very specific focus on of life or policy within the framework of war and the aftermath of war. And something about it just really caught my attention. At the time, I didn't really know what it was. But after I finished my degree, it actually became such an important tool or asset for me to have that it translated into the kind of subjects that I was focusing on when I started working as a documentary photographer. So it was very interesting. But I know at the same time, you were also pursuing your art, specifically your photography. 
when did you decide that you want to pursue that as a career? So when I started studying, I, I appreciated my degree much more once I'd finished it. While I was studying it, I felt probably because I was quite young, this like constant like pressure of wanting to, to really, you know, keep pursuing something creative. And because my day to day was just going to class about uh, politics or strategies or, you know, like international policymaking, I definitely felt more than ever like I had to fill the void of creativity and I didn't want to sort of lack behind other people. So I uh, used my time off to work with photographers. I started off at a photography agency in London called LGA as an assistant. And through my time there, I met different photographers that we represented and I started assisting some of them. And suddenly I just started, I, I, I was kind of smitten by the world of photography as a tool, both of communicating realities and also communicating our most vivid imaginations. Because some of the photographers that we worked with were more on the, you know, like hard documentary side of things. And then some of them were just very out there and whimsical. And so I love the duality that uh, I came across through a very simple uh, communication tool as photography is. And and I, can sp- I speak from experience when I say that pursuing a creative career is it's not a linear process. It's pretty tricky. You know, there's a lot of interning. There's a lot of like working for free. So what did your life look like at that point? How were your days filled? Yes, uh, it's yeah, it's never a straight line, is it? And it's very challenging, I guess. But when you find yourself in a situation like I did at the time where I found myself in a situation where because I had to finish my degree, I didn't have that much time in my hands to really focus on the creative. And when I'm under pressure or I feel like something's slipping away, that's where somehow out of, I don't know where, just the like the magic impulse like pushes you forward to keep going. And I started off interning and making coffee. And at the time I didn't drink coffee and I used to mess up everybody's orders <laughs> all the time. And it was not a very interesting or fun type of job but the main thing I think that you need to like get your foot in the door and it 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 doesn't matter if you're serving coffee or you know sending out photographers portfolios to couriers like the the fact that I was in that environment that I was able like given the privilege to be in that in the environment of that office with the producers and the and the agents and the photographers and I could hear in conversations and meetings and I could slowly like start understanding what was going on because at the end of the day nobody really explains to you how the industry works you kind of just need to figure it out for yourself even if you do pursue a creative degree like if you were to study photography at university or fine arts or something in the degree, nobody's going to sit down and explain to you step by step how the industry works. And I know this from friends who have gone down that route. And then we found ourselves exactly in the same place. Mm. So definitely, you know, it's 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 hard beginnings. And um, especially when you're in an epicenter, of, you know, like cosmopolitan center like London or New York or Paris, the competition is so high and you just mm-hmm. feel like you have to climb the ladder one step at a time and really earn your place and every single person from you know like one of my favorite 
photographers, Alexei Lubomirsky, he started off just like me as, as, as an intern serving coffee or as a runner at shoots. Um, and today he's one of the, you know, best regarded fashion photographers in the world. So it's kind of like a, is it called like a rite of passage or like a hazing that has to happen mm-hmm. to really see whether you have it in you or you have the commitment to, to make it happen for yourself. So it's tough, but you learn a lot. I'm really happy that I, I decided to stick with it and, and yeah, and push through. It sounds like a lot of stuff happened while you were in London. There was a lot of growth that happened, uh, but there was yeah. also a really scary experience would you feel comfortable sharing a bit about what happened to you? You know, it's it's funny because I've never really like talked about this or spoken up about it. Um, I think I've spent my whole life just trying to bury it and, and forgetting it instead of really acknowledging it as like a very important piece of the puzzle that is me today. When, you know, you reached out to me to to do this podcast about the trip that changed me, I realized how important this had been in my life. And that in sharing my story, that maybe other people can recognize that that there are breakthroughs that happen in probably the lowest points of your life. What happened to me is after I finished uni, I stayed in London to work. And at the time, I was living in Notting Hill and I was juggling about three to four different jobs at the same time just to make ends meet and get by and pay my rent. Um, my only goal at the time was really to just find a, a way financially to be able to stay in London, which is a which is difficult because it's a pricey city. And at the same time just remain involved in in the industry that I was hoping to develop myself into. And one night I think it, some some parts of this situation or, or this experience are kind of a blur in my head. But I remember I came home one night quite late from a shoot. And as I was coming into my house and opening the door, someone just pushed me from the back and uh, basically just came into my house and assaulted me. And it, you know, it was, it was a very traumatic experience because it's not even something that just like someone mugged you in the street. It happened within the safe grounds of my own house where suddenly, you know, that safety was kind of like taken from me in an instant. And at the same time, it was, you know, it was a personal attack and it was, it was quite violent. And then the person left and they, they, I was robbed. They took things from my house. But at the same time, I feel like I was robbed of a lot more than just some, you know, like petty material belongings. I feel like I was robbed of my confidence, of my independence, um, of my ability to, to like trust myself because I couldn't trust myself anymore. And it really, you know, forced me to come to terms with certain realities. I know after that you you sought therapy, um, all different types of therapy to try and cope with the aftermath. But it wasn't having quite the impact you'd hoped and you still felt like you were a long way from recovery. What did you do next? I did try everything that was at my reach uh, right after the attack anything from like traditional psychology to more alternative methods like Reiki and things like that. And nothing really seemed to be working. And at the same time, I had this feeling where like I didn't want to leave London because I felt if I did, I was letting it win over me instead of pushing or like not giving into this battle. But after a while, I I came back home 
to to Spain and I spent some time with my parents and my parents suggested to me that maybe what I needed to do was to just get on a plane and and travel by myself I thought it was a absolutely bonkers idea if I'm honest with you because it kind of felt like it went against every sort of like sensible parental advice after going through a situation like this um and I didn't really understand their thought process at the time but because I I had already tried so many other different things and I am lucky enough to to have a very close relationship with my parents and I do trust them uh, entirely, even when I don't understand them. I decided to start thinking about it. And eventually I decided to, to just take a leap of faith and do it. It was very scary, to be honest. I mean, essentially what they were suggesting was exposure therapy. You know, you'd become afraid of being alone. So their thinking was that perhaps the best way to address that fear is by taking a solo trip. Um, and I'd really like to read something you said in the production notes because it's so well put. So you wrote, At this moment, traveling alone was the scariest thing in the world for me. They seemed to understand something I didn't. In order to overcome the trauma and reclaim my confidence and independence, I needed to be put to the test. And -hmm. as you said, I think it's kind of a testament to your relationship with your parents that A, they would even suggest something like this as a solution, and B, that you would take their advice despite being terrified. I think it shows the bond that you have with them and that they do know you so well. Yes, yes, absolutely. There, there's, there's always something about your parents that they, they can see, or maybe it's not just your parents, but the people around you can see things from a different perspective than the perspective that you have, you know, like uh, in the first person. And as I said in the notes, like they, they saw something that I couldn't see and I couldn't see it because I was dealing with uh, you know, constant triggers and PTSD and feeling extremely lost. Like, you know, just to be a bit more explicit about how I felt after the attack, because I feel like a lot of people don't really talk about it. I basically couldn't step out of my house by myself again, which meant that I couldn't go to the supermarket to do groceries. I couldn't mm, walk to the tube to go to work. I couldn't go to a cafe to meet my friends. So it basically affected every single point in my life. And then I also didn't feel safe or at peace in my house or or I didn't really have a place to call home anymore. I felt like that had been violated or you know, like taken away from me. And so I was just a mess. I was completely lost. And sometimes you know, you hit rock bottom and the only way, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a cliche, but the, you, your only option then is to like start climbing out of it because you can't go anywhere else. And the entire point of your plan was that there wasn't really a plan. So you'd be learning to trust your gut and follow your intuition again. Mm-hmm. So you flew to Hong Kong and from there yeah. you ended up buying a ticket to Cambodia on the first plane that had open seats. What was it about Cambodia as opposed to like maybe you know, Thailand or one of the Southeast Asian countries with more, you know, developed tourism infrastructure that was appealing to you? I can't really give you like a pretty answer to that question because there really wasn't one. (laughs) I was so like out of my depth that I couldn't even make a plan for a week ahead because that's just how lacking in self-confidence, reassurance 
I was. Um, and so my parents said, you know, like, do this, go travel, this and that. I had never been to Asia before in my life. And I've been traveling since I was a baby. You know, my dad is a pilot, as a sailor. We've gone all around the world. Um, but Asia uh, was a place that I didn't, that I'd never experienced. So I was like, okay, I had a friend in, in Hong Kong. So that's why I decided to, the long haul flight was from Europe to Hong Kong. I was there for about a week, stayed with my friend. And that was kind of like the, the halfway moment. Um, so I was like flying out of the nest again and then kind of like facing the fears of being uh, alone on the road. And one day I just woke up and I was like, okay, I can't keep putting this off. Like I need to just, I need to just go somewhere and, and start this solo trip or, you know, like just do this, this, this journey. And I, I, I was so nervous and I was so stressed out about it that I couldn't really sit on my computer and just look at booking.com and see what flights there were. I also didn't want to give myself the chance of backing out if I booked a ticket like a day or two in advance and then headed to the airport. So I just decided to go straight to the airport. I packed my bag. I went straight to the airport. And I just looked at the screens and I looked at the flights that were going out. I went to the ticket desk. I asked about the tickets and uh, the first flight that was flying out that had availability was to Phnom Penh. I didn't really think about it twice. At the time, I wasn't traveling for the joys of travel, let's say. So I wasn't really thinking, oh, maybe I should, you know, like I heard that Thailand has really pretty beaches, so maybe I should go there instead. I just needed to kind of get it done. And that's how it happened. So I didn't really know anything about Cambodia. I didn't know... Um, I obviously didn't have a, like a hotel or any sort of like travel logistics organized. And it was just more important to get my, my foot out the door than the destination itself. So, so yeah, that's kind of how it happened. It feels like a bit of a sliding doors moment. Like if you hadn't have picked that country, your life would have turned out so differently. You know what? I agree. When I think back at it, I think uh at some point in you know in a in a parallel universe where this life changing situation happened to me in london if that wouldn't have happened um at some point in my life i would have ended up going to southeast asia and i would have probably ended up doing you know the 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 whole sort of region in three weeks like everybody does uh thailand vietnam laos uh, cambodia is usually just like a two day stop to see the temples in siem reap and you know call it a day and I would have probably seen more diversity. Yeah, I would have probably had more fun experiences as far as fun is defined in terms of travel, probably. But because that wasn't my case and that wasn't my scenario, I think the fact that I ended up in Cambodia was very fortunate for many reasons that we can uh, touch upon mm. now. But at the end of the day, I think that because it wasn't so much about the destination, it was just about getting the 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 task or the test done it didn't quite mm -hmm. matter where it was even though it ended up being very important that it was in Cambodia and I know you were obviously extremely nervous on the way and you were crying on the flight how did you feel when you arrived in Phnom Penh oh my god it to this day it has been the worst flight of my life and you better believe I've had some pretty terrible uh, 
situations when traveling but this 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 was just awful I I was I was nerve-wracked I was so nervous I could not stop crying it it felt scary but it felt refreshing at the same time Mm. because I felt like I had been so sheltered for the last few months of allowing myself to get to the depth of those feelings um so it was kind of cathartic at the same time before I left my mom said to me you know whatever happens mm, you can always get on a flight and come back it's that simple you know you're lucky enough to live in a world where there's flights on the daily and and you can do it so don't think that the moment you leave it's going to be a struggle to to come back or to get out of that situation and I felt like that that definitely appeased my nerves a little bit and once I once I arrived in Phnom Penh I was so scared that as I was queuing up at immigration every time it was my turn to go through immigration I would just take like get myself out of the queue and like go all the way to the back again because some somehow like symbolically it felt like once I went for immigration there was no going back and and yeah it took me maybe like an hour to get through and to be honest Phnom Penh is not a big airport it's not one of these hectic places where it you know it, it takes usually 10 minutes to go through uh and it took me an hour and after I went through I was waiting for my luggage and I spotted uh a girl her name was Sabine I think I'll never forget I'll never forget her name and I was just kind of observing her and she was foreign looking she was tall she was blonde uh, she looked Nordic or something but I could see that she could speak the local language she could speak Khmer and I was like okay I need to I, I need to speak to her because at that point I realized okay I'm gonna grab my luggage I don't know where I'm going because I don't have a hotel I don't have a guidebook to tell me how to get from the airport to the to the city so that was kind of my I guess the second test, you know, of really like learning to trust your gut and also trust strangers again, which was something that obviously I had lost in the process of the assault. And then tell me about the city itself. What was, what were your first impressions? What was good? What was challenging? What surprised you? You know, at the end of the day, this is a travel podcast. So I'd love to tell you how beautiful and charming it was. But Phnom Penh as a city is actually quite devoid of any like conventional beauty or touristic charm. It's the capital of a country that is just stepping out of uh, a civil war that's done a lot of damage to the country. Um, it is a developing country as well. So it's not the, the, the prettiest of places. Usually people, when they travel to Southeast Asia and they go to Cambodia, they go to Siem Reap, which is the city which is next to the Angkor temples. And Siem Reap as a city has a lot more touristic infrastructure just because it, it lives off tourism. So maybe aesthetically it's a bit more organized. There's a few paved roads. There's some nice boutiques and restaurants and this and that. Phnom Penh as the capital of Cambodia is the complete opposite, um, or at least when I was there in 2000. And 13, it, it was, uh, it, it's a big, chaotic, messy Asian city. There's very few paved roads. There's a lot of, you know, like smelly trash everywhere. And yeah, it, it's not surprising why it's a place that's usually avoided 
by people who do a tour of Southeast Asia. I want to read again another section from the pre-interviewed notes because you just write so beautifully. Um, I think I write better than I speak. (laughs) (laughs) No, you speak beautifully as well. Honestly, I promise you. So you wrote, there was a sort of mutual understanding and empathy between the city and myself. I didn't feel like I had to hide or pretend I was something else, nor did the city, which compared to other places in Southeast Asia is considered charmless and devoid of beauty. I settled in amid all the rubble and began to rebuild, rebuild myself from square one. I'm glad you brought it up because even though, you know, as like a, a first impressions uh, on a very superficial level, aesthetically, it's not a very interesting or charming city. I, at the time, wasn't a very, you know, interesting or charming person myself. And I felt like there was a sort of, when I talk about, you know, there was a sort of mutual understanding between the city and myself was because I felt broken and the city also felt broken. And there was no need for me to feel like I had to pretend to be anything other than what I was at the time, which was you know, broken human being in search of uh, something that would heal myself. And as you walk, you know, as I walked the streets of Phnom Penh, I realized anywhere I looked around me, everybody was kind of on the same boat as me, just because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Cambodia is is a young country, one that's come out of a war very recently, and it's still rebuilding itself, and it's still suffering from a lot of, like, Uh, trauma from years of conflict and every single middle-aged person in Cambodia is a survivor of the trauma of war and so in that sense I felt very comfortable being able to just strip down to and allow myself to just be what I needed to be in that moment whether that was happy whether that was sad whether that was curious and stepping into a market or just you know like staying in my hotel and writing all day I didn't really feel any pressure to do anything other than what I needed to whereas if maybe I would have ended up you know somewhere else like uh, I don't know like uh, Vietnam or Thailand where there are places that maybe hold um, in the traveler's imagination they hold a lot more like a higher regard I would have maybe felt more compelled to be like, you know, okay, so I'm in Bangkok, so I need to go see these temples and I know I need to go uh, try out this uh, experience or whatever. Phnom Penh, there was nothing. There was none of that. There were no, you know, five must-see highlights of Phnom Penh. It was a city that people usually avoid, uh, travelers usually avoid. And... In another perfect manifestation of synchronicity, you also met some photojournalists while you were there. How did those people impact the trajectory of your career? I was very fortunate uh, during my time in in Phnom Penh and Cambodia to meet a group of uh, photojournalists um, that kind of took me in. Uh, Like if maybe I was like a bit of a stray a stray puppy, they might they might have seen me as such, and they took me in. I, at the time, I was living in a hostel, and they said, you know, we have a spare room, come over to the house. And so at that point, I, you know, from one day to the next, I wasn't dreaming about 
being a photojournalist anymore. I was living the the life of one even before I got my first assignment because I was sharing, you know, the day-to-day lives of these this amazing group of photojournalists. Um and being in that environment just as interning back in London, it allowed me to be privy to certain information and way of doing things and just like see what the day-to-day life was like and slowly penetrate it. And eventually um, with their help, you know, they said, you know, like maybe you need to start doing a, a, a personal photography project while you wait for assignments to come in. And so they kind of, you know, put together a set of like, little steps for me to take and and they were very welcoming very open to help me out and what was great was that anytime that they had conflicting assignments or they were given jobs that they couldn't take because they were booked up I was right there kind of the plan b waiting to just take these jobs and so it was very easy for me in that sense to really on the one hand side just not have to focus on all the other things in life for example in London where I had to think about you know having several jobs to keep up with the rent and the bills and everything um and all these other distractions I was able to just focus exclusively on what my ambition was professionally which was to become a photojournalist um I was in the perfect setting to do so and I had no distractions and I had a wonderful group of people helping me get there so in that sense, it I, I was really lucky. Was that a particular assignment or commission or project where you felt that tipping point as a creative person where you knew you were breaking through or becoming you know successful in the way you wanted to be? Yes, yes. There there definitely was a, a breakthrough for me, which was towards the end of my time in Cambodia. Uh, I felt like for the first year that I was there. Uh, yes, by the way, I ended up staying for a whole year. <laughs> um, for that whole, you know, first year, I started dipping my toes quite slowly but steady and picking up little freelance assignments with different NGOs and stuff like that. And and it was great practice. It was a great practice for warm, like um, I'd say, like when you're doing exercise and you're warming up, that's how it felt. And then towards the end of my time in in Southeast Asia, I decided to take sort of like t- take an as, uh, an assignment upon myself, which I was very personally um, interested in. But because of the nature of the job, nobody like no publications were willing to commit to sending me there. Which basically, long story short, it, nearby in Burma. There was uh, the crisis with the Rohingya uh, refugees happening. And this, you know, going back to what I had studied at university and how my very strange choice of degree ties into all of this, um, I had always been extremely interested in uh, the idea of what happens after a war or a conflict is over. You know, we hear about wars and the atrocities of conflict in the news all the time. We see the photos, we're kind of desensitized to them, which is very sad and dangerous at the same time. But once the war is over, nobody really talks about what happens after. And that also resonated with me on a personal level because I was attacked and everybody or everyone around you tries to focus on the attack instead of really focus on what's happening after the attack. So 
in any case, there was um, this, the Rohingya crisis was going on. It was not being covered. And I took it upon myself and just focused on getting there and getting it done, even though I had all the cards against me because no editors were commissioning the story, even though I was pitching everywhere. And, you know, fellow photographers were saying to me, like, don't go. It's dangerous. It's this. It's that. You're not going to be allowed in. So I had everything running against me. And somehow at that point, I just felt the more people said no to me, the more I wanted to like prove them wrong. Like sometimes just because something is um, logistically or bureaucratically difficult doesn't mean you just need to give up on it. And I ended up going to Burma and I found my way inside the refugee camps and I produced what is probably to this day one of my most meaningful pieces of work. I'd say, you know, on a technical level, I'm probably better now than I was back then. But in terms of the quality and the and the the meaning of the work and the relevance, it still remains one of the most important pieces of of stories of my career. It's funny because you say that's the tipping point for your career, which definitely sounds like it was. But it also sounds like it was a tipping point in terms of your own healing from the traumatic experience because you had the bravery and the the self-belief and the self-confidence to go after. You go into a dangerous situation and know that you wanted to pursue that. Yeah. And you know what? It wasn't so much like it. Maybe I'm making it sound like it was some sort of like adrenaline rush or something like that. I completely agree with what you're saying, but it was not a question of like, I'm going to find the most risky, dangerous thing in the world and do it. And at that point, you know, I'm, I'm healed and I'm overall my, my, my PTSD or my trauma. It was more like, I guess I, I felt again, a moment of synchronicity happening right there and then in which what was happening to the Rohingya people was being ignored because it wasn't considered you know relevant or important enough because it wasn't like a war or a conflict it was just the kind of like aftermath situation and they were absolutely completely being forgotten and that resonated with me on a personal level because I felt like maybe there's like I wasn't being like given any attention in terms of like the recovery of the attack and I thought it was a tipping point personally because I for the first time, you know, took that leap by myself without it being pushed on by my parents or someone else. And then me just like following their guidance. It was my first sort of like own decision I made for myself. Totally. And it, you know, even if it wasn't especially like hugely dangerous or risky, it still took a lot for you. You know, you knew it wasn't going to be an easy story to get, but you trusted yourself enough to know and and cared about the story enough to know that you were going to get it. Yes. And once I got to, to Sitwe, um, which is the the small town in Rakhine state where the refugee camps are, the IDP camp. um, At that point, it had taken me so much effort to get there that I, at that point I was definitely determined to make it happen one way or another. Um, And funnily enough, it took me about, it took me about, five days of uh, logistics to uh, get into the the refugee camps um, because they were not the government wouldn't allow anyone in and I ended up being smuggled in like inside a uh, 
inside a bag of rice. Oh my so, god! <laughs> yeah, it, um, it, I mean, I know it sounds like a fable or something, but it it's not. It's actually how it happened. Um, but at that point, I just I think for the first time, I felt like myself again. I had found a sense of purpose. Um, I was not questioning myself. And I had, you know, complete conviction in what I was doing. Um, and that was something that, you know, I, I hadn't felt since before the attack and probably maybe never in my life. Because when I, I, I was quite young, I was 24 years old. So at that age, you can't say you have lived that much. So it's not just that it helped me get over the attack, but it also helped me grow and mature as a person, uh, personally and professionally as well. I'd like to talk a little bit more about, you know, how you overcame what happened to you in London, because when we're talking about something as huge as recovery from a traumatic experience, I know that healing has to happen in small increments. What were some of the experiences or things that you did in Cambodia that helped to rebuild your confidence and sense of self and security? My initial idea once I got to Cambodia was probably to spend about two weeks there travel around the country and then head back home. Once I hit the two weeks, I decided to stay on. I couldn't quite verbalize why. I just knew that, like, I felt like I just needed to stay a bit longer. And it wasn't because I had things to do that I hadn't done. Like, I don't know, like, go see the temples or go to Sianukville uh, or, or the, the things that typical tourists do. It was just more like I, I, something's happening here. I feel all right with myself, so I need to see this through. And my day-to-day life was pretty routinary. It was pretty, I wouldn't say interesting in any way. I mean, I would just do the same thing that I was doing back in London. You know, I would sit in my computer in the mornings and look for different, you know, freelance gigs that I could uh, do to uh, support my my expenses. Um, I would hang out with my new friends in the evenings. It wasn't like a a travel itinerary where I was like going from point A to point B and ticking things off the list. So there wasn't anything sort of quite like picturesque going on, but there was a feeling inside of me where I just felt like I had to stay on a little longer. And I think a lot of that a lot of this came from the fact that anytime I'd head like down to the street where I lived and just hung out in the afternoon and you know just maybe just like people watch or like hang out with our neighbors or go down to the market to buy food that I was by myself for a long time here and in some ways when you're alone and you're not traveling with other people you're left to your own devices and your own thoughts a lot more and you're able to listen to yourself or hear yourself more and it was the experience of becoming a passive observant of what's going on around you became like a very central sort of theme of my life at that point and i just loved going out and just strolling aimlessly looking around observing my surroundings and probably because the situation that Cambodia is going through as a country, I started to see a lot of strength and resilience in people uh, manifested in very sort of, you know, quiet acts of everyday life, uh, nothing really extraordinary. And this 
started to resonate with me in ways that I can't really explain. As sometimes these things, like for me, they escape the narrows of language. Like I can't really explain the connection that I could have had with the woman selling, you know, mangoes covered in chili in the corner of my street because it, there wasn't a lot to be said. It was more instead of what was said, what wasn't said. Um, and just learning to be a passive observant and soaking everything I was seeing in and kind of making it my own. And through the resilience and the strength of the people that I would see every day, I think I started to recognize that I had to maybe take that and make it my own a little bit more and like adapt it to to my life or adopt it and so that's what I did and you know healing is a very slow process and so it didn't happen from one day to the next and it didn't happen from one month to the next it was extremely slow and at the time I was just sort of following my my instincts and anytime it came point to like think about going back home I would sit down and be like you know what it's not the time yet so I'm going to stay for another month or I'm going to stay for another week and that's kind of how it you know progressed into ending up uh, for a whole year. Hearing your story it strikes me that you're somebody whose life has been impacted by happenstance like we were saying earlier sliding doors moments Mm -hmm. but I also think people whose lives are influenced by happenstance they move through the world with like a specific mindset and an openness, mm-hmm. which I think yeah. you have. So do you feel like, you know, your ability to you know, take a risk and follow your curiosity and to look for more meaning had led to these extraordinary experiences and encounters? I definitely think that you need to be uh, consciously receptive to these situations. If you're not receptive, you're not going to allow yourself to see the opportunities that are right in front of you. At the same time, you know, letting things happen by chance sounds like you're putting your destiny in the universe's hands, but it really isn't. Like, first you need to be receptive and then you also need to have the necessary confidence to trust yourself and your observations to make a sensible call, especially when you're traveling alone and as a woman in my case. You have to be careful just to make it clear that I'm not, you know, suggesting to anyone to just like hop on a plane and, um, mm. I don't know, put themselves in a risky situation. No, you have to use your your brain more than ever. Uh, you have to be ex- extremely careful, and extremely observant. But there's a very fine line I discovered in my experience in Cambodia. There's a fine line between taking sensible risks and just being a bit mindless about things. So I did take risks. Uh, Some were maybe a bit more calculated than others. For example, you know, when, when you're traveling alone and you want to, you need to seek help from a stranger, as I did. I didn't just approach this girl, I don't know, aimlessly. I, I, I observed her for a little while. I analyze the context of the situation and then I decided she's the right person that I should approach um or when you jump in someone's tuk-tuk and you know they someone offers you a ride and you decide to jump in the back of their car or their tuk-tuk you can't just do it because 
you're trusting that the universe is going to take care of you. At the end of the day, you're traveling by yourself. You need to take care of yourself and you need to be extremely aware and observant of what's going on and then be receptive to it and then make calls. But what I feel is most important, I discovered, is if you don't have the confidence or the trust in yourself to make these judgment calls, then you can't really do it. And that was part of the the healing process for me. That's something that I had lost during the attack. I had, you know, I stopped trusting people. I had become extremely cynical about the world and about strangers. And to be honest, it's no way to live. Um, And I had to learn how to get back to it. But obviously, you have to think about yourself and, and ways of being safe about it. So obviously, you you said you ended up staying for more than a year. And eventually, Cambodia would become one of the first destinations for trips offered by your company, Naya Traveller. Do you want to touch a bit on what Naya is and how you use that your experience there to inform the trips? The, The funny thing is, is that I would have never in a million years thought that I'd ever have start my own business, put it that way. I'm kind of like a, I'm quite an independent sort of free spirit. And I, the freelance world is made for for me and like for my type of personality. So I never thought I'd end up having a, a business. But again, it's one of those things where, you know, the stars aligned and Naya came to be uh, along with my two partners, Sophia and Sarah. And while we were sort of developing the idea of what we wanted to do, we knew we wanted to offer trips. We wanted them to be very personalized, um, very experiential. Um, and try to offer something that was a little bit different because the the travel market is very saturated and sort of like, okay, well, uh, we need to follow our dreams, but at the same time, we need to make sure it's sustainable and like it's a sustainable model of business. So when we decided to start the company, we're like, okay, where can we really shine uh, in terms of the services and the experiences that we can offer? We can do this in the destinations where we have either lived in the past ourselves or we've spent, you know, maybe like more than six months in um, through different, I don't know, maybe jobs or something that have kept you somewhere for an extended period of time where you really sort of break through the barrier of experiencing a destination as a, as a visitor or as, a, you know, in a more local way. And obviously Cambodia was one of the places that uh, made the list from the beginning just because spending a year there it's, it's also quite a small country and during the time I was there I was based in Phnom Penh but I had the chance through the different uh, assignments that I was doing with NGOs um, to travel extensively across the country and go to a lot of uh, the more quiet rural areas and it also gave me an opportunity to maybe expand on the vision of going to Southeast Asia and maybe just doing Cambodia on its own as a standalone country instead of it becoming like a two two day appendix to a Thailand trip, you know, because that's usually what happens. Like people go to Thailand or Vietnam and they do like a side trip for two days to Siem Reap and then that's all they see. And Cambodia just has so much more to offer than the temples, which are beautiful. But it was really like the perfect destination to really show that uh, through knowledge and experience you can can offer people a different perspective on a destination I love it and I know this is a massive question but looking back how do you feel that this trip changed you I think it's changed me in in every single way 
you know, on a personal level, it helped me uh, come to terms with with my trauma and accept it as part of who I am as a person instead of trying to bury it or, or be ashamed of it. It started my professional career, and for that, I'm I'm eternally grateful. And the kind of you know the it it also changed my outlook on life on life and on travel as well. It's made me, you know, it made me realize like how how little we really actually need to be happy. And at the same time, how much we get back when we decide to take risks. And that for me was something that was crystallized on that trip. Um, and it's something that has stayed with me ever since. And that has become sort of, you know, like an intrinsic part of my being and my uh sort of personality that I apply to every every single thing in my life oh Marta thank you so much you've been an absolute delight and I hope we get to meet in person one day I hope so too Esme it's great uh speaking with you it's very cathartic for me as well where can people find you on the internet so they can find us at nayatraveler.com is the website of our travel company if people want to travel with us or uh, have us give them a hand in planning their travels. Um, otherwise, I have my photography portfolio website is matatucci.com, where you can find um, the kind of the, like some of the stories that are right uh, along with my photography. Love it. Before you go, I'd love to do a couple of quick fire questions with you. what's the one thing every person should experience in their lifetime I definitely think without a doubt that people should uh, gift themselves a trip on their own because traveling on your own allows you like it changes you in so many ways and I definitely think everyone should experience that at some point Mm -hmm. where were you from in a past life I think anywhere along the Silk Road, that's where I was in the past life. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's the one place you've been daydreaming about during the pandemic? I'm, I have a, a, a bit of a spastic mind, so it, it just kind of changes a lot. But I'm, I've been dreaming about going to Mongolia for the longest time. Uh, during the pandemic, it's given me a chance to really be able to like dig deep into the research of this trip, which I'm planning at some point to do as soon as this is over. So, so yeah, probably head back to the roots of nomadic life. That sounds amazing. Um, is there a favorite book or film or a podcast that you love um, for a long haul flight? Okay. Oh, oh this is embarrassing. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> this is going to be so embarrassing. I love, there's a movie that I like to watch, but I only watch on planes. And for me, it's the, this is very embarrassing. It's basically the ultimate travel experience. And the movie is called Interstellar. And it's about space travel. And, you know, it's something that I feel like it, I'm never going to experience myself. So it's amazing to just be able to dream about it while I'm on a plane in the middle of, you know, the night sky. I love to sort of go there. 
I love that. I haven't even seen Interstellar. I'm gonna have to add that to my list. It's 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 a very commercial, you know, movie. I I would have loved to give you something a bit more cool and obscure, but let's just be honest here. Sometimes you just need a good dose of, uh, you know, like es- escapism. Totally, flights are for fluffy movies. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite Instagram account to follow for Wonderlust content? I love following an account called Slow Roads. I don't know much about it, to be honest. It's one of those accounts that compile or curate like content from other accounts or things they find online. And it all has a sort of, it has a feeling of a bygone era uh, in terms of the kind of pictures that they share. A lot of it is travel related and it's pictures of a world that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I kind of love that. Interesting. I'll let that one up. Um, besides the one we've just been discussing, what's the ultimate travel experience of your lifetime? The ultimate travel experience of my lifetime, I would say, and this is kind of like taking it back to my roots, I'd love to one day be able to go on a, on a sailing trip with my father. He wants to do a, a trip around the world on the sailboat, and I'd love to be able to be there to document it. That would be incredible. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Uh, well, thank you so much. Thank really you, Aita. It. It's been great. During the pandemic, Marta started working on a photo book composed of images and journal entries from her adventurous travels. Follow Marta on Instagram at martatucci or visit martatucci.com for updates on that exciting project. for listening to this week's episode. I hope you liked it. I'll be back in two weeks time to share more inspiring travel stories. And in the meantime, you can learn more about us by visiting fulltimetravel.co or following us on Instagram at full underscore time underscore travel. If you have a story you want to share on the trip that changed me, drop us a line. And please be sure to rate, review and subscribe so we can keep this adventure going.